When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The True Crime and Paranormal Podcast Festival will be held on August 25th through the 27th, 2023 in Austin, Texas. Join other ethical true crime podcasters, victim advocates, and paranormal creators for a weekend full of panels, roundtables, and live shows. Purchase your early bird tickets now at truecrimepodcastfestival.com slash tickets. Explicit content is found in this episode, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to True Crime Cases. I'm your host, Lainey. In the shadowy corners of true crime, there exist cases that defy our grasp on reality. These are cases that could easily be mistaken for the intricate plots of movies, the pages of some tantalizing pulp novel, or echoes of a crime show that thrived on intrigue rather than spectacle. Remember back in March when we delved into the eerie truth that eclipsed fiction in our episode titled Stranger Than Fiction? where a woman transformed the very word she penned into a sinister reality, ending her husband's life just as she had once written in her article titled, How to Kill Your Husband. Then, in the Babysitter Killers episode released just last December, where we revealed the shadows lurking behind the silver screen were a mirror of our darkest fears. In today's episode, we will venture into cases that could have been plucked from the heart of the musical Chicago, You know the one. Women involved in the murder of their husbands, adamant of their own innocence. But if they weren't innocent, gosh, he probably had it coming, right? Well, no, not really. No matter how hard they try to convince you otherwise. But let us not be swayed by the allure of such speculation. Today, we will anchor ourselves in the stark reality that these cases present. Fred Osterreich and Robert Samuels, both victims in their own right, are entwined in stories of deceit and darkness. Their lives cut short. Their stories are not a fiction, but hauntingly real, leaving behind questions we often ask ourselves when the hosts of our favorite podcast share the great links some people go to to rid themselves of their spouses. Today, we'll be covering the murders of Fred Osterreich and Robert Samuels. Okay, on to the show. Let's dive into our first case, which dates back to the early 1900s. Don't be deterred by its age. It's a case that's as peculiar as it is captivating. Fred Osterreich was born on December 8, 1877 in Chicago, Illinois, to parents Wilhelm and Johanna. 
he had one older sister, Anna, and a younger brother, John. While details about his childhood are scarce, as an adult, he rose to prominence as the owner of a textile factory making aprons in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, amassing significant wealth. In 1897, he married a beautiful factory worker called Dolly Korschel. Originally from Germany, Dolly's legal name was Walburga, and she was born in 1880. Again, little is known about her younger life besides her family moving to a farm in Wisconsin when she was a young woman. Marriage to Fred may have afforded Dolly a more comfortable life in some respects, but the two were cut from very different cloth. Dolly was a cheerful, pretty young woman, very friendly and charismatic to all those who knew her from her time on the factory floor. Fred, on the other hand, was regularly described as dour and hard-nosed, and had a reputation for being a heavy drinker. Fred's demanding work schedule and nearly equal hours spent socializing at bars meant that Dolly didn't have to contend with his presence very frequently. As you'll soon hear, this circumstance would play a crucial role in her favor. Despite their differences, the two were quite content in their marriage, eventually welcoming a son into the family, soon after the turn of the century in 1900. The little boy who they named Raymond would be their only child, and tragically passed away in 1910, just before he would have turned 10. Raymond's death is widely credited as the reason Fred and Dolly's relationship began to suffer, which is understandable, as navigating any relationship after the death of a child is devastating and traumatic, no matter who you are. Still, their relationship managed to survive, if not damaged, and the pair stayed together. In 1913, completely unbeknownst to Fred, everything changed. Dolly called her husband while he was at work to tell him her sewing machine wasn't working. Fred sent one of his workers, 17-year-old sewing machine repairman Otto Sanhuber, to the home to see if he could fix it. Now, picture this intriguing scenario. Dolly, amidst her sewing machine conundrum, reaches out to her husband who's toiling away at his workplace. We aren't sure if Fred told Dolly he was sending a worker out or not, but as the story goes, Dolly swings open the door to greet Otto. The catch? The accounts paint a very vivid image of her appearance, draped in a silk robe and matching stockings, all while being engulfed in her heavy perfumes and brace. It's a rather astonishing tableau that might seem plucked from a tale of fantasy rather than reality. Now, remember the era we're diving into with this case. The narrative stems from a time when journalism occasionally tiptoed along the edges of imagination. So while the image of Dolly's door opening attire is indeed captivating and salacious, we have to recognize that it was likely flavored by the spin tactics used in 20th century journalism. However it truly happened, Dolly and Otto began an affair that neither party wanted to end. They continued seeing each other, but they weren't exactly subtle about it. And it wasn't long at all before Fred found out what his wife and employee were up to. Dolly promised to end the affair for the sake of their marriage, with her fingers crossed behind her back probably. Because instead of losing either of the men, she decided her best move would be to move Otto into their attic so that she could continue to see him whenever she wanted. Well, within reason. 
Otto was apparently just as infatuated as Dolly because he agreed to this bizarre arrangement. He quit his job at the factory, something Fred probably put down to his shame upon the affair being discovered, and began to live in the Osterreich attic. I think I'll just let that sink in for a moment because it gets weirder, if you can believe it. Otto lived in their attic for the next 10 years. Even when Fred opened up a new factory and relocated them to Los Angeles in 1918, Otto moved with them. Dolly apparently only agreed to the move on the condition that their new house had an attic. Once said house was bought, Otto moved into it before the married couple did so that he could create a space for himself in the attic without any trouble or the risk of being found. During those 10 years, Dolly and Otto spent every moment they could together. When Fred left for work or dithered at a bar, Otto would appear from the attic. Together, they would do any tasks and chores Dolly needed to complete in the home, then spend the rest of their time frolicking, to put it politely, and indulging in bathtub gin. Then, before Fred returned, Otto would disappear into the attic once more, and all he had to amuse himself in the tiny space were piles of books, his only furniture a small cot, and a bucket to relieve himself in. Otto would apparently spend his time alone writing pulp novels, which Dolly would sell on his behalf. She would also occasionally give him tiny amounts of money, you know, out of the kindness of her heart. Fred was aware that something wasn't quite right. Their home made odd noises, and he could have sworn that food was being consumed much too quickly for a household as small as theirs. Dolly used her charm to convince him otherwise, gaslighting the man into believing he was just stressed from his long hours as a busy businessman, that he was imagining things, and that maybe he should cut down on the alcohol. Fast forward to August 22, 1922, a cataclysmic turning point. The Osterreichs, returning home after a night of heated arguments, found themselves careening towards an abrupt halt. It must have been a severe fight, something that transcended the bounds of mere disagreement, for it ignited something far more intense than their usual spats. In a stunning twist, Otto took it upon himself to defend his lover. He took two guns with him from the attic and confronted Fred, who reportedly became enraged when he recognized his ex-employee. There was a struggle, guns went off, and Fred Osterreich was killed taking two gunshots into the chest and one to the head. In this chilling crescendo, the tale of love, betrayal, and fatal conflict took a grim and final twist. The stage was set, the actors played their parts, and the outcome was etched in a flurry of gunfire, leaving Otto and Dolly to grapple with the aftermath of that fateful night. Well, at least, that's the version of the story that was coaxed out during confessions that took place almost a year later. The pair hurried to stage the scene as a robbery before the police could arrive, Otto locking Dolly in a closet and hiding himself in the attic. Sure enough, a neighbor called for the police after hearing a disturbance, and they arrived at the scene to find a dead man on the floor of the living room and a terrified woman locked in a closet. When Dolly had calmed down, she told the officers that a burglar had broken in, murdered Fred, and stolen a valuable watch from his possession. She claimed that she had been putting away a fur coat she had worn that evening 
when the burglar appeared and forced her into the closet. Although the officers felt something wasn't quite right about the story they were being told, Dolly saying that she and her husband never quarreled, probably the facts before them matched what Dolly was telling them. They couldn't discern a motive, and barely anything had been taken if it was indeed a robbery. But there was no evidence to suggest foul play on Dolly's part, so she was free to go. After her husband's murder, Dolly moved to another home, and for some reason, she took Otto with her again and continued to keep him in her attic, even though she was now a single woman and had no qualms romancing other men. Case in point, she began something of a relationship with her estate attorney, Herman Shapiro, and gifted him the very watch that was supposed to have been stolen on the night Fred was murdered. When Herman voiced his suspicions, Dolly confirmed it was. The watch simply hadn't been stolen. It had just fallen under a cushion in the home, which he believed for some reason. And Dolly also started seeing a businessman named Roy Klum at the same time. It couldn't have been more than a couple of months into their relationship when she came to Roy, asking him to do something for her. She wanted him to dispose of a gun, claiming that it looked like the one the burglar had used to kill her husband, and she was terrified that if anyone found it, she would be accused of his murder. Again, for some reason, Roy just believed her. He disposed of the weapon by tossing it into the La Brea tar pits, hoping for its destruction. Turns out, Dolly had also told the exact same thing to her neighbor, and he had buried the other gun in his backyard. These instances with the guns came to light when Dolly and Roy broke off their relationship. Wondering if he had been let on, Roy told the police about the gun and where he had disposed of it in July of 1923. They found it almost immediately, and Dolly was arrested on July 12th, and the next day the story made its way into the papers. From there, her neighbor read the story, dug up the other gun, and presented it to the police. But both guns were in poor condition and were too rusty for police to determine whether they had been the ones used in the murder of Fred Osterreich. Herman Shapiro, remember him, the other, other man? The one she had given Fred's watch to, visited Dolly in prison and was absolutely baffled when Dolly asked him to do something for her. She wanted him to buy groceries for her home, which should have been empty at the time. He pressed her on the matter, and she eventually confessed that Otto was living in the attic. And could he please tap on the attic door twice so Otto knew it was safe to come out? Caught in a web of intrigue, Herman's actions were guided by Dolly's strange and enigmatic request. He complied with her wishes, albeit bewildered by the circumstances. Enter Otto, a man who had been denied a voice for ten long years. Herman was a sort of conduit for Otto's pent-up revelations, becoming the first person to hear his side of the story. The weight of those years of silence unraveled the day Herman knocked twice on that attic door. But if you thought Herman had wisened up to Dolly's axe, well, he continued to defy expectations. Herman found himself making a choice, a choice that for the fourth time in this episode, I am forced to say, for some reason, Herman decided to keep Dolly's secrets. He forced Otto to leave the home, and the state for that matter, and moved in with Dolly himself. The charges related to Dolly concealing the guns were eventually dropped, since there was no way to prove they were actually connected to the murder. 
But seven years later in 1930, she would be back in the hot seat when Herman also came clean to the police about everything he had been told by Dolly and Otto. Dolly was arrested for the second time and charged with conspiracy to murder, while Otto was located and charged with murder. Otto's defense was that at the time of the murder, he had been enslaved by Dolly, but he was still found guilty for manslaughter, for which the statute of limitations had run out. Otto Sanhuber, admitted murderer of Fred Osterreich, walked free from the court. And Dolly got away with it too. Her attorney, Jerry Geisler, won over a hung jury and she was free to go. She died in 1961, age 75. She had remarried two weeks earlier to a man named Ray Burt Hedrick, who she had been in a relationship with for 30 years. It's not known what became of Otto after his trial, though the media dubbed him the Batman, because he had spent so much of his life living in various attics. It could be argued they were somewhat kinder to Dolly, who was portrayed by Shirley MacLaine in a 1968 take on the story called The Bliss of Mrs. Blossom. Nobody ever faced punishment for the murder of Fred Osterreich. I suppose the most likely reason all these men bent to the whim of Dolly was probably love, if not something that looked like it. However, it is hard to believe that the woman in the next case felt any love for her victim. Let's get into it. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Did you know that Americans spend an average of 90% indoors? But here's the shocker. Indoor air can be two to five times more polluted than outdoor air and in some cases, a staggering 100 times worse. Take a deep breath and listen up. The 2020 census report revealed that almost 165 million people live in areas with unhealthy air pollution. The World Health Organization warns us that 9 out of 10 people breathe air exceeding pollution limits, causing 7 million premature deaths worldwide yearly. We take about 20,000 breaths daily, so it's time for a solution. Enter Air Doctor. The air purifier CNN, Money, and ABC are raving about. It filters out contaminants and allergens using an ultra-HEPA filter, removing 99.99% of tested bacteria and viruses. Don't settle for ordinary purifiers. Air Doctor virtually eliminates particles as small as 0.003 microns in size, like a champion for your lungs. And their Air Doctor 3000 purifier can refresh a 630-plus square foot room's air four times an hour. WhisperJet fans keep things serene. They're 30% quieter than your average purifier. And here's the clencher. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Head to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code TCFC for up to 39% off or up to $300 off depending on the model. It's time to breathe easy. Visit AIRDOCTORPRO.com with promo code TCFC. 
Hey there, busy achievers. Are you feeling the crunch of jam-packed days as the fall season approaches? Well, let me tell you about Factor, the ultimate secret to staying fueled and focused. Picture this, Factor, America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit, delivering chef-prepared, dietitian approved meals straight to your door and no more stressing about cooking or compromising on nutrition. It's time to save time and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle. Summer's not over and neither are your goals. Skip the grocery store hassle and the chopping because Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are ready in just two minutes. Heat, enjoy, and conquer your goals. Revamp your routine with 34-plus flavorful meals ready in a heartbeat. Elevate your experience with Gourmet Plus options featuring premium ingredients like truffle butter and asparagus, pure indulgence for your taste buds. Lunch to go, anyone? Keep your energy soaring with effortless, wholesome meals, perfect for on-the-go lifestyles. And for those calorie-conscious champs, dive into calorie-smart meals under 550 calories per serving. Need a protein boost? Factors got your back with Protein Plus meals packing 30 grams of protein or more. And remember to explore over 45 add-ons from apple cinnamon pancakes to invigorating cold-pressed juices. The best part, you're not just eating well, you're making a sustainable choice. Factor offsets 100% of delivery emissions and sources renewable energy. And we're all about sustainably sourced seafood. So, champions of August, it's time to seize the moment. Say goodbye to prep and mess. Go to factormeals.com slash laney50 and lock in 50% off with the code laney50. That's F-A-C-T-O-R-M-E-A-L-S dot com slash L-A-N-I-E five zero. Code laney50 for 50% off. Robert Briscoe Samuels was born in 1948 in Santa Ana, California. He always adored photography, even as a child, and after graduating from Santa Ana High School, he put all of his focus into landing his dream job. And land it he did, with a lot of hard work, determination, and painfully long hours on the set. He secured his job as an assistant camera operator, behind the scenes in Hollywood. He worked on a number of well-known movies throughout his career before it was cut short, including Heaven Can Wait, Real Genius, Lethal Weapon, and the second Beverly Hills Cop movie. Robert's life began to come together beautifully for him in the 80s. He was getting hired for big gigs, sure, but at the start of the decade, he began a relationship with a woman he fell head over heels for when he was still only a kid, Mary Ellen Gurnick. Mary Ellen was a year older than Robert and was a typical all-American girl-next-door type. A happy coincidence, as Robert was one of her next-door neighbors. She was a very flashy, beautiful teenager and spent her time living the California high life of being boy-crazy, going to drive through movies, and taking trips to Disneyland. The two married in 1980, and Robert adopted Mary Ellen's young daughter Nicole without a second thought. Robert's sister Susan reported that he adored the young girl and always treated her as if she were his own child. Regrettably, just as easily as love can be threaded together, it can also quickly unravel. The once harmonious connection between Robert and Mary Ellen plummeted into an abyss of discord, where conflict echoed through their days. The source of their strife was a familiar one. Money. Robert may have been a Hollywood camera assistant, but Mary Ellen burned through a lot in her party girl lifestyle of expensive clothes, expensive cars, and expensive bar hopping. 
seemingly avoiding the reality that was their financial situation. In a bid to corral the financial chaos, Robert acquired a Subway sandwich store franchise. It was definitely a gamble, not just in business terms, but also in hopes of imbuing Mary Ellen with a dose of responsibility. The intentions were clear, at least to Robert. More money flowing in and perhaps a chance for Mary Ellen to embrace a more prudent and fiscally responsible path. What may have also put a strain on their relationship, according to Mary Ellen, was abuse she and her daughter suffered from Robert. She alleged that Robert would beat and mistreat them both and even to the extent of sexual assault. These claims did not come to light until around the time of Robert's death and there is no record of any such abuses taking place. However, we will not pretend to know what happened behind closed doors or degrade the statements of potential abuse survivors. Mary Ellen was the one to end the relationship in 1987, when she moved out, taking the refrigerator and leaving a five-page Dear John letter, according to the LA Times. The letter contained phrases like, Our marriage has gotten stale, and I hope we can be friends, but I can't live with you. She then filed for divorce. Robert hoped that Mary Ellen would eventually change her mind, slow down her spending, and see sense, and that the two of them could reconcile. They came to a compromise, a trial separation term, during which Robert would help cover her living expenses. The $1,500 he sent Mary Ellen each month helped pay for a condo for his estranged wife and teenage stepdaughter to move into, in the Reseda neighborhood, which is located in the San Fernando Valley of L.A., and in addition to living expenses, Rob continued to fund Nicole's private schooling. He wanted his family to live comfortably, with or without him. But Mary Ellen's resolve was fierce. She was resolute that the relationship had reached its end. She reportedly told several friends that she hated her husband, telling them about the abuse she and Nicole had allegedly suffered at his hands. She even told one friend in particular, Heidi Dougal, that she wanted him done. Although this statement may have seemed like an exaggeration, fueled by hate in the heat of the moment, it would soon become clear what Mary Ellen meant when she said that she wanted her husband done. In November of 1988, a pivotal moment emerged in Robert Samuel's life. He confronted a stark and hurtful truth a realization that cut through the years of emotional investment. The woman he had once fallen so fast for, Mary Ellen, remained steadfast in her unchanging ways. This realization led him to sitting down with a lawyer, embarking on the path to formalize his divorce from Mary Ellen. This step was just the beginning. Robert made another choice to sever the financial ties between them. In doing so, he cast aside any lingering glimmer of hope for reconciliation. This also set the stage for the ensuing events that would unfold. Only a few weeks later, 40-year-old Robert was attacked in his home. He suffered a hard blow to the head, likely knocking him down. And then, the intruder shot him in the head with a 16-gauge shotgun, fired through a pillow in an attempt to muffle the sound. Mary Ellen and Nicole were the ones who found his body a couple of days later, on December 9, 1988. Mary Ellen called the police after they found him lying in the hallway. They had been at the residence as they were dropping off the family dog, a schnauzer, who was supposed to spend the weekend with Robert. But something was off about the crime scene. 
The house had been ransacked, furniture in disarray, and objects scattered everywhere. But it didn't look like a crime scene, and nothing particularly valuable was missing. Somehow, more than anything, it appeared to be an inside job, or a scene set by someone who knew exactly what they were doing. Amidst the unfolding drama, a cloud of distress seemed to envelop Mary Ellen. Initially, the police's scrutiny didn't stretch towards her as she appeared on the surface to be an unlikely participant in the murder. However, even in the midst of her apparent despair, her behavior struck an odd chord. It's as if a mysterious current ran beneath her distress, revealing glimpses of what truly lay beneath. A particularly bewildering scene took place on the very night that she, along with her daughter, stumbled upon the grisly remains of her soon-to-be ex-husband. Rather than being consumed by the shock or grief of the scene, Mary Ellen displayed an eccentric display of flirtation. In a very puzzling move, she engaged with a detective, her actions bordering the surreal. Apparently, she rubbed the detective's head, claiming, I like bald guys. That scene alone sounds like it should have come from one of Robert's movies. Oddly enough, that wasn't necessarily out of character for Mary Ellen Samuels. She was described by many as being crass and bawdy, and had personal license plates that read N-A-S-T-V-X-N or Nasty Vixen. She had even hired male strippers for Nicole's 18th birthday, an eyebrow-raising testament to her proclivity for pushing societal boundaries. For her, being crude and sexually inappropriate was just what Mary Ellen did. However, what finally made the penny drop for investigators was how Mary Ellen behaved when she received Robert's life insurance payout. Conveniently, as the two were technically only separated rather than divorced, she had inherited everything he was worth, plus the $500,000 from the insurance. If Robert had completed the process of divorcing Mary Ellen, she would have only received a settlement of $30,000. She and Nicole immediately moved back into Robert's home and put the sandwich shop up for sale. So what did Mary Ellen do with the vast sum of money? Well, she didn't use it to pay off her mortgage, which she allowed to default. She didn't pay off debts for the Subway franchise. She didn't even pay for Robert's headstone, despite making a great effort to appear to everyone around her that she was a poor, grieving widow. Instead, she spent nearly all of the money in just over a year. $50,000 in cash for a shiny new white Porsche. $130,000 on a condo in Cancun, Mexico, throwing a lavish birthday party for herself limousine trips to Vegas, even custom-made lingerie from a store called, you'll never guess, Trashy Lingerie. Perhaps the most notorious piece of damning behavior took place the year after Robert's murder, when she was even photographed on vacation by her boyfriend, Dean Groover. In this photo, she can be seen naked, lying in a hotel bed, covered in roughly $20,000 in 50s and $100 bills. It's one of the first things that comes up when you search her name. Go ahead, I know you're curious. It was also later shown at trial since it was found to be relevant to the charges she was facing. Those charges being murder with the allegation that her motive for doing so was the intent of making financial gain. But that's getting a little ahead of ourselves. 
There was no concrete evidence tying Mary Ellen to Robert's murder, and she wasn't anywhere near his home at the time. So how could she be involved? Well, that didn't take all too long for investigators to work out. The answer came via an anonymous tip in May of 1989, just before another body was discovered. This tip told the police they should look into a man named Jim Bernstein. 27-year-old James R. Bernstein worked at an electronics store and sold drugs, reportedly cocaine on the side, carrying business cards that proclaimed he was a specialist in what it wasn't clear. He was also the boyfriend of Nicole Samuels, Mary Ellen's daughter, and had proposed to her earlier in the year. Bernstein and Mary Ellen were brought in for questioning on the same night, an attempt to spook one or both of the suspects into confessing their part in the crime. Mary Ellen held firm, but Bernstein was less steady, apparently quietly telling Mary Ellen, he's going to arrest one of us or both of us right here, right now, tonight for the murder. He says he knows 100% that you and I did this. Neither of them made a confession that night, but in the weeks that followed, Bernstein was having a change of heart. Matt Rao, who ran the electronics store Bernstein worked in, told the TV show Snapped that the last time he interacted with Bernstein, the man called up and told him, I'm just going to tell the police what I know. A couple of weeks later, in June of 1989, a professor of botany was on a nature hike in Lockwood Canyon in Ventura County when he stumbled across the badly decomposed remains of James Bernstein. He had been strangled and dumped unceremoniously in the remote location and was in such poor condition that he had to be identified by his fingerprint records. Bernstein's gig as a drug dealer meant he could have been targeted by any number of people who may have wanted him dead, people who owed him money, people he owed money to, someone who had gotten the bad end of the deal. But that would have been a coincidence, too many for investigators working on the murder of Robert Samuels, especially given what they were about to find out from Mary Ellen's drinking buddies. It was only after the death of Bernstein that the drinking buddies decided to talk, in exchange for immunity when the case went to trial. Up until that point, none of them wanted to believe that Mary Ellen had really done what she was loudly planning in their presence, but they didn't want to be the next ones on the receiving end of a hitman. In the months leading up to Robert's death, Mary Ellen had openly speculated about having her husband murdered, even asking a friend named Marcia Hutchinson for a loan so that she could hire a hitman. Marcia wasn't the only one either, but nobody wanted to believe Mary Ellen was being serious. The group of friends who would meet up in local bars and restaurants would often complain about their divorces and finances. Maybe Mary Ellen was just lashing out because her own divorce was looming on the horizon. The only less subtle way to get caught would have been to get a high schooler involved. Oh, wait. Selena Kroll went to Alamany High School and was a close friend of Mary Ellen's daughter, Nicole, who was a senior at the same school. Nicole asked Selena if she could get a gun for her so someone could take care of her father, as Mary Ellen had apparently found someone to commit the act. Oddly, they just needed to be provided a means of doing so. As defense attorney Philip Namath would later ask in disbelief, what hitman doesn't carry his own gun? The answer to that would be, not a very good one. But Selena had more to say than that. 
Mary Ellen herself had approached Selena's brother, John, and Selena's fiancé, David, and asked if they would be interested in carrying out the hit. Apparently, they declined because Mary Ellen had to keep looking for someone to murder her husband. According to Mary Ellen's friend Heidi Dougal, Mary Ellen lost a fair amount of money trying to hire shady hitmen, as if above-board ones exist. She complained to Heidi that she had spent almost $15,000 for their services, only for the men to no-show or botch the attempts. One attempt took place a month before Robert was murdered and involved Mary Ellen arranging a dinner for him and his friends, planning on him getting drunk and disoriented, and having the hitman pick him off when he was alone in the car park. Another plan was to get Robert drunk and somehow drive him off a cliff, but it's unclear how Mary Ellen hoped to achieve this. In the end, evidently, Mary Ellen found someone to carry out the murder and a gun for them to carry it out with. And all signs pointed to James Bernstein. The final piece of the puzzle slotted into place when it was found that Mary Ellen had written a check of $1,500 just before Bernstein's disappearance. The check signaled the start of a trail that ended in two new names, Paul Gall and Daryl Ray Edwards. And Paul Gall immediately made the confession they couldn't get from Bernstein, his involvement in a murder, but not Robert Samuels. No. Mary Ellen had paid James Bernstein to murder her husband. Then, when she thought he was going to tell on her, she paid Paul Gall and Daryl Ray Edwards to murder him. She hired a hitman for her husband and two hitmen for her hitman. With Gall's confession in hand, police rounded up both Edwards and Mary Ellen into custody to join him. Edwards also confessed, the two hitmen pleading guilty to the murder in exchange for a reduced sentence, swapping death penalties for 15 years in prison. Mary Ellen, however, continued to maintain her innocence all the way up to her trial and to this day. In April of 1994, the trial began for the double murders of Robert Samuels and James Bernstein in the Van Nuys Superior Court. Mary Ellen was also charged with two counts of attempted murder and soliciting murder, and the special circumstances of murder for financial gain and multiple killings made the case qualify for the death penalty. The prosecution alleged that Mary Ellen had plotted to murder her husband out of greed, something that was easily backed up by her behavior and rapid-fire spending following his death. Several of her friends testified against her, confirming that she had discussed acquiring hitmen and killing her husband with them, and friends of Nicole testified to the same. Gall and Edwards' confessions all but sealed the deal. Gall told the court that he had been incredibly drunk on the day they murdered Bernstein, having drank around 30 to 40 beers that day, and that they had driven Mary Ellen's car to commit the murder, the same car that had the nasty vixen license plate. Mary Ellen's defense seemed to rest on the idea that the preceding events being described by the prosecution were utterly bizarre, which, granted, they were, but that wouldn't be enough to save her. Nicole testified in her mother's defense against the advice of their lawyers. She denied the claims made by her friends, including that she had told them that she had been involved in altering the scene of the crime to make it look like there was a break-in. She also testified to the alleged abuse her and her mother had suffered, detailing that Robert would strike Mary Ellen when he was drinking, and that he would humiliate and slap his stepdaughter for incorrectly looking after their pets. Nicole also spoke of the sexual abuse she claimed began when she was 12, 
and the eight assaults she suffered between the ages of 13 and 16 before she left home. She told the court that she didn't speak up about her experiences for fear of breaking up her parents' marriage, only telling her mother about it in October 1988, after they had already separated. Those present at the trial speculated that she was lying about the sexual abuse due to the contrast in how she spoke of it, emotionally detached, versus how emotional she was when she spoke of the previous cases of slapping and humiliation. Robert's sister, Susan Conroy, believed she was lying about certain instances of abuse to save her mother's life, as this was a death penalty case. Susan also described the allegations as the ultimate betrayal to Robert and his memory, as he was no longer there to defend himself against them. However, I'll repeat what I said before. We will not pretend to know what happened behind closed doors or degrade the statements of potential abuse survivors. Whether or not Robert abused the women in his household is not for us to decide, and regardless, does not change whether Mary Ellen hired Hitman to carry out two murders. Just under three months after the trial began on July 1st, the jury found her guilty on both counts of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to death in September of that same year. In 2019, after 25 years behind bars, Mary Ellen's death sentence was reversed due to the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California finding that her trial lawyer had not provided effective representation. Mary Ellen will, however, spend the rest of her life in prison. She is now 76 years old. Her story has been sensationalized by the press, who referred to her as the Green Widow, like the Black Widow spider, which eats its mate when it's no longer useful to her, while the Green refers to the money she allegedly did it for. Paul Gall and Daryl Ray Edwards were eligible for parole in 2009, though Gall was brought back into custody for drug and alcohol charges soon after. It appears that neither men are currently imprisoned in California. No charges have ever been brought against Nicole in connection with the murder of her stepfather. As we close out this episode, we're left with the haunting echoes of two women and the chilling shadows they cast across the span of 66 years. Their lives intertwined by threads of darkness, pulling us into a narrative of murder, deceit, and twists that could easily grace the silver screen. We can only wish that the memories of the men who lost their lives and the shattered families they left behind have somehow found solace in the time that has passed. Okay, listeners, thank you for joining me in this episode as we file away another true crime case. If you like our podcast, please review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast player of choice. It's a really big help. Follow us on social media. We're active on Twitter for now at truecrime underscore cases. Facebook at facebook.com slash truecrimecaseswlaney and Instagram at truecrimecaseswithlaney. Our website is truecrimecasespodcast.com and you can follow me on Instagram at laneyhobbsbo or on TikTok at laneyhobbs. And we'd love to hear your episode suggestions. Send us an email, tcfcpod at gmail.com. This episode was researched, written, and edited by Jesse Hawk of The Inky Paw Print, with content editing by Lainey Hobbs. Audio engineering produced by the best in the business, Neeks, at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or at theinkypawprint.com. Wait! 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.